1: welcome to Dress, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan.
0: And Cassidy Zachary. So you've heard us mention this on the podcast a time or two, Dress listeners, but fashion and race are intimately interconnected. But what does that relationship look like historically and why does it matter to today? So for answers, we are so pleased to welcome independent scholar and fashion educator Kimberly Jenkins back to the show. If that name sounds familiar, it's because Kim joined us earlier this season to discuss her wonderful podcast, The Invisible Seam*: Unsung Stories of Black Culture and Fashion.
1: And her name should also sound familiar because we've spoken about Kim's work many times on the show before, as somebody who is doing invaluable and important work educating audiences around the globe, from the general public to billion-dollar luxury fashion labels, about the complex interactions of fashion and race. She does this with her digital global learning platform dedicated to that very relationship, the Fashion and
0: Race Database. You've heard us say it time and time again on the show, fashion history is about more than pretty clothes, and there's this interconnecting thread between fashion and race's relationship throughout history and today, but it's a thread that is rarely critically considered in the canon of fashion history that often privileges white, Euro-American-centered narratives.
1: Just as fashion and race are not mutually exclusive entities, neither are the past and the present. With over 1,600 resources, from essays to books to podcasts, Kim's groundbreaking database brings all of these things into conversation with one another, with a mission to expand the narrative of fashion history, while simultaneously challenging misrepresentation in the fashion industry today. It is incredibly important work, and we are so pleased to welcome
0: Kim back to the show. Kim, welcome back. Thank you. It is so wonderful
2: to be here a second time.
0: Yes. So can you just introduce us to the Fashion Race Database and tell us a little bit about what inspired you to create it?
2: Yes. Kind of like the episode where I was talking about the podcast, I'm going to go right into um, my tagline. I'm going to go right into my like pitch voice, the Fashion Race Database. It is an online platform filled with resources that help us examine the intersections of fashion and race It expands the narrative of fashion history and it challenges misrepresentation in the fashion system. Trying to make a long story short, I was inspired to create it, I guess, taking a step back around 2015, I was teaching at Parsons School of Design and they offer this opportunity to pitch a course, pitch an elective course. So I wanted to pitch a course on fashion and race. And so um, as I was developing an outline, like a syllabus. I was actually kind of also figuring it out as I went along. Like I I was feeling like as a graduate from the fashion studies program, also at Parsons, we learned a lot about fashion theory, fashion studies, fashion history, but we didn't really kind of address the the intersections of fashion and race. And in my papers as a grad student, I would try to address it, but I thought, oh my gosh, you know, left to my own devices. And if I were to like teach a class on fashion and race, what would that look like? And so I spent the entire summer going through the libraries and finding books on fashion and race, which I would find in like fashion history, art history, cultural studies, gosh, dare I say critical race theory. I'm like terrified to use that phrase now. Um, African-American studies, you know, just various areas. So I just started it was almost like a movie, you know, like walking through the aisles and piling up all the books and carrying them and dumping them on a table and spreading them out and thinking, okay, if we were to cook up a, a a syllabus on fashion and race, what would it look like? So as I was doing that, I was developing the syllabus for fashion and race, which was introduced at Parsons in the fall of 2016. And so as I developed that, I also started thinking, I want to also dump this onto a website, you know? And so I bought one of those kind of out of the box websites that you can go online. And and so I just started kind of putting a section for books, articles, panel discussions and exhibitions that I found. So it was kind of self-serving. I was just kind of like trying to visualize it. But I also thought, well, if I could use this, I'm sure other people could. So in the year or two that went by when I first created it, I would get emails from around the world of like. Thank you for helping me with my dissertation. Thank you for helping me with my master's thesis. I've been going all over, you know, these libraries trying to find resources that explore fashion and colonialism, fashion and, you know, Black fashion history. Where does cultural appropriation first come from? And, you know, what's the, what's the timeline of it? Uh, I mean, just retail discrimination and fashion, all these things. You helped me, make my job a lot easier by just kind of making your website, almost one giant filter in a library. So um, I knew I was onto something at that point. And so then I got a job at the university formerly known as Ryerson University in Toronto, Canada in 2020. And I had a tenure track position there as an assistant professor of fashion studies. So I was able to kind of carry on my work there. And so, one of the glorious things you get in like a full-time teaching position is funding. And so I ended up developing the database further with funding by getting like a proper web developer to build this little dinky website that I had originally into a fully fleshed out learning platform where it almost feels like you're on an online, well, it did feel like you're on an online library. And so uh, from there, I was able to kind of hire students and, as research assistants and ask them, what do you want to study? What do you want to explore? You know, one person was like focusing on Arab fashion, indigenous fashion, Asian American fashion history, you know, all these different aspects, black fashion history, queer identity. And so I realized, Oh, this is like bigger than me now. Now I'm building the kind of place we've always wanted something, you know, a place for us to kind of work out these ideas like a laboratory. And so that's when really the fact by 2020, that's when the fashion race database was really born
0: or born again, <laughs> really. And we're going to talk about kind of how apt it was that it came out in April, 2020 and Woo. the Black Lives Matter movement really, you know, the protests went in obviously the following month in May, 2020. So we'll talk a little bit about that and why this database is more important now than ever in a little bit. But first I kind of want to talk about how one of the central goals of the database is challenging and decentralizing the dominant narratives of fashion history. So before we dive into the lessons and resources the database offers, I kind of want to discuss what those dominant narratives are, what you're working against. And I mean, you were at Parsons in 2011. I was at FIT in the master's program in 2011, and I loved it. I absolutely enjoyed my time there. In retrospect, the fashion history I learned was Eurocentric. Yes. Um, it privileged white people almost exclusively. And, you know, I'm curious to hear if that's kind of the fashion history you learned. Um, I think that's the fashion history most people learn. Uh, Coco Chanel, you know, Karl Lagerfeld, Charles Frederick Wirth. So, you know, let's talk about a little bit what those about what those dominant narratives are and why it's problematic.
2: Yeah, that kind of ties in with the inspiration for why did you create the database in the first place? Why on earth were you even pitching a course on fashion and race? Like, what is that? What is that about? And so, I like you, we were kind of in the same boat, you know, at different institutions learning these things. And so, you're only really as good as the the resources you get, you know, and the, the professor you have. And, you know, I was new to all of this from 2011 to 2013, I was in the program. And I was a sponge, you know, just taking all of this in. And I also wasn't as well-versed in fashion history. I mean, I had books in the years before that. I was a fashion lover already. That's why I was in the program. So I would always pick up books on fashion history. But it it was weird. You know, I, I wasn't questioning as much at that time. I just thought, oh, I guess this is fashion history. But even since I was a kid loving fashion, I would get so excited when I saw Naomi Campbell Andre Leon Talley, Byron Lars, you know, all these designers coming out, but they were just sort of these blips on the timeline of fashion history, these exceptions. And I didn't really know what was possible. Pat McGrath, you know, like all these people just kind of popping up, never knowing about an Anne Lowe or Elizabeth Keckley until like decades later. And so by the time I started teaching, you know, in your early years of teaching, you sometimes get imposter syndrome and you really are kind of using as a crutch more often than not, or at least I was, I'll just speak for myself. Um, I started teaching, I was getting teaching jobs right out of graduation in 2013. So I was using these fashion history books, like fashion theory and fashion history, and depending on those, because I had to teach a course to these students. Um, And I would go through these books, and I would just memorize them and study them. And I, as a Black woman, you know, I had some questions in my mind. I was like, gosh, this is just really white, but, you know, I would have to teach fashion history courses, like from ancient times to today. And so I ended up having to learn about and digest everything about European fashion history. I knew everything about them and they didn't have to know anything about me and my history, you know, and my heritage. And so here I am talking about cod pieces and you know, (laughs) bustles and stomachers and just, you know, like, and knowing everything about Christian Dewar's personality and everything about Paul Poirier and his temperament, you know, and explaining this. And even the funny thing is even going deep and getting hidden fashion history stories of white women, you know, and like feeling like I was really doing something, you know, but, but I was realizing, gosh, you know, well, I don't have any books to tell me otherwise. And so thanks to authors like Nichelle Gaynor, who authored the book, Black Vintage Glamour, uh, or Vintage Black Glamour, you know, it it was that, that was like finally sort of centralizing and putting together, and and also authors like Constance White, who were putting together books on black style that really kind of helped diversify these these, um, histories. Um, But it wasn't until, kind of as I was saying earlier, a couple years into teaching so 2015 now i was a couple years into teaching at two different universities and i was feeling strong enough now when i was teaching students like okay i've learned all the things in fashion <laughs> history in what is the canon of fashion history now it's time to kind of disrupt it a little bit let's explore what else there is there and that was like doing double the work I know many colleagues were not doing that work, but it took extra work, a lot of moonlighting from teaching fashion history by day, of pouring over books and just sourcing your own resources from other libraries by night to figure out okay, how can I cobble together a new kind of fashion history that is expanding all of this? Who else, like if you're talking about 1900 to 2000 in fashion history, and you're going from labels like Lucille, you know, in 1900, to Ralph Simmons, who else, you know, who's Black? Or in terms of Latin American fashion history, or in terms of Asian American history, Indigenous dress, like how can we squeeze all those in there and really give people the full picture so it's not just dominated by these kind of Euro-American stories? So then, you know, at that point, I felt confident enough to start challenging dominant narratives. Because one thing, not to get too preachy, is you really need to know what you're up against, like the fashion history, like that you need to know the dominant narratives, or what the history is everyone's talking about.
0: The canon, yeah.
2: Before you start disrupting things.
0: And just in terms of the dominant narrative, I want to make sure our listeners kind of know what we're talking about specifically. So what we're taught when you go into these fashion history courses, or what I was taught, um, and kind of what the canon is and the the dominant narrative of fashion history is, is that fashion began um, as a system in, you know, 14th and 15th century Europe. So, it's this, this this literal narrative, right? So, these there's this rising wealthy merchant class of white wealthy merchants in Europe. Um, they gain a lot of money. And because they have this newfound money, how are they going to show their money Well, they're going to express it through the clothing they wear? And then it becomes this competition. And then you have this cycle of new fashion fashion styles. Anyways, you fast forward to like the 19th century where the quote-unquote modern fashion system comes of age under Charles Frederick Wirth, and modern fashion was born. He becomes a designer and a label, an artist that uh, his customers seek out to buy his designs, right? And you just continue to privilege this narrative that centers white European American men and women all the way up really until like maybe the 60s, it starts kind of to change. You meet designers like Stephen Burroughs, but not really. Um, Sometimes you meet him in that fashion narrative. And then continuing into the present day, right? So that's kind of what we're talking about when we say Eurocentrism. And it's also, right, Kim, which I think you're going to talk about now when we talk about how you're challenging those narratives, is how we define fashion. Fashion is almost exclusively defined as Euro-American. You don't ever look outside Europe or America and say, look at these other fashion systems that exist around the world. And so that's something you're doing on the database, which is just incredible. So can you talk a little bit more about how the database is challenging these narratives?
2: Yeah. And so, you know, and you're spot on with that. I mean, things I would talk about in fashion history, from what I learned and was taught, thanks to white, you know, insert white designer, the genius of Charles Frederick Worth, that is where labels come from. Thanks to you know, Paul Poirier, it's because that's what frees women in, you know, loose garments and what they want to wear, you know, which we've, you know, questioned since then. Thanks to Dior, women can be women again. And, you know, glamour is back. And thanks to this canon of rebels in the 1960s is Mary Quant and Pierre Cardin and André Courreges, and then the rockers and the mods and the punks, you know. So people start learning, especially fashion students, this is where glamour comes from. This is where rebellion, even the rebellion and the liberation has to come from white people, you know, like like rock and roll culture, which rock and roll is, you know, also pulled from black music and punk style. And, and we have to get bound up in their own politics. So even political struggles, we learn through the lens of white fashion and even the resistance within there. And so, yeah, and, and the list goes on where we just keep understanding Everything about the way we dress and the way we see dress is thanks to and just really kind of platformed by like white designers and white geniuses and, and thinkers, like white visionaries and tastemakers, makers, um, all the way down to the models and the socialites who could wear the couture and all that stuff. So, what the database does by pulling this evidence and all these resources is okay, sure, but in between all that and that history, and even you talking about like from the 13th to 14th century we were always there, you know, we were dressing. There were, there were people dressing in Africa, in Latin America, just various parts of the world, they were always there. The, the craft traditions of indigenous people in Canada, you know, we need to start kind of understanding or kind of tying together all of these dress practices from around the globe, because let's not fool ourselves into thinking all of those moments that we we were just mentioning in fashion, in European fashion history weren't touched by, you know, know, other cultures. (laughs) They were absolutely influenced by these things, from silhouettes to the motifs to, you know, all of it. And so, you know, it becomes dominant when we just assume that there's only one race of people who are the geniuses and get to kind of take as Scholar Minhoff and would kind of consider it the raw material of other, other with a capital O or racialized people as the material to then quote unquote refine and elevate quote unquote into fashion. That's what we're up against. That's what we're pushing it back against because they're absolutely pulling their inspiration and aesthetic from um, other cultures. So when we talk about dominant narratives that we're exploring and confronting and examining. It's things like high value. What do we consider highly valued? You know, especially in the luxury space or aspirational spaces with design. You know, really get into your psyche and think what is beautiful to you? What is aspirational? What is luxurious? All the way down to geography. Oftentimes in fashion history, especially by the nineteen sixties, 1950s and 60s, location was everything. You know, if something had a made in Italy label or made in France, your eyes widen you think, oh my gosh, this is luxury because it's made in France or it's made in Italy. But thankfully today, as we're expanding these narratives or confronting these narratives, we have people talking about, proving to us that actually some of the most beautifully made crafted leather goods come out of Africa, you know, but we've been so conditioned to believe that it only comes from Italy or I would never, (laughs) it has to come from France. So that's what we kind of mean by that. That's what it can make possible is, it, is exploring where something's crafted or sourced. You know, we put so much emphasis on, you know, these European locations. So, so yeah, so when we think about dominant narratives, that's gonna, that means we're examining this from geographic region, ethnic background and cultural history, physical appearance that is absolutely touched by the social construct of race, language. Languages that we see as high valued, what's a luxurious language, and then what's a working class language or a language that we don't take seriously and religion, politics, all of that shapes what we believe and what endures and what we decide to perpetuate in fashion.
0: Can you tell us maybe a little bit about like each section on the database and kind of the different ways that you explore what you just talked about and the ways that you present knowledge to people who are going to head to the database and use it as a resource?
2: Sure. So I knew from the beginning when I was designing kind of the framework and working with the web developer to tell him like, first of all, this is, this is a heavy topic. And to get people on board with this or, you know, or really to kind of benefit from this and understand this, um, it's got to be clear. And I'm also like, I love organizing. (laughs) And so categorizing things into things that are a little more digestible was very important, especially when you're also going to have people side-eyeing you or questioning you and wondering, why do we have to bring race into everything, you know, and why do we have to talk about this? And is there such a thing as fashion and race? I dare you to prove that to me. This is such an unwieldy, it could easily be such an unwieldy topic. And thankfully I love to organize. And so um, in working with the web developer, we designed it into different sections, almost like you're looking at an online publication or a newspaper. And so I, I was thinking, well, if you know you're trying to introduce someone to the concept of, or or the study of fashion and race, you know, what kind of sections would we have to do that? So there's several sections I can explain and and kind of the logic behind it. And so the most, kind of the heart of the website, of the database is the library. And I think that's the one that most students, educators, museum researchers, everyone uses. And that's really kind of the, the meat and potatoes of the website because it has hundreds of books articles podcast episodes including yours exhibitions you know archived exhibitions links to panel discussions all about addressing fashion and race from various topics and of course when I say fashion and race fashion and race it's kind of this umbrella term so underneath that it's books that cover indigenous fashion history Asian fashion history black fashion history theoretical, White papers that talk about decolonizing fashion, exhibitions that explore, you know, from an intersectional perspective, fashion. So, you know, the list goes on podcast episodes that explore that. So for, so really, that is kind of the most evidential section, because anyone who's thinking, why, you know, why fashion and race? If you just go to the library and see all of these sources, you will see how we've curated this whole collection and taxonomized it. We do it by keyword also or by region, author, and year. All of the numerous conversations that have been had for at least a century on fashion and race. Another popular section, I think the second most popular section is called Objects That Matter. And that's something I designed, I kind of I envisioned that. And that was in response to all of the complaints that I would see about cultural appropriation, how like a certain Object that was designed or created or worn by a certain group of people. It was like adopted or appropriated and you know misinterpreted or worn in a disrespectful manner. So objects that matter. What it does is every time you go to a specific object, um, it, it's a garment, it's an accessory, and it's something that more often than not you are very familiar with. But what we do is at the top of the article or of each object profile. Um, You'll see the object in its original context, like pictures, like um, archived images of how it's supposed to look and who it's originally worn by. Then there's a whole survey, a brief kind of survey of what it is and where it came from. And then um, most importantly, there's kind of this sidebar that we created that gives you kind of the quick and dirty of like, this is the culture it came from. This is the year it was created and for how long it's been worn. This is the materials involved. This is how it's constructed. This is how it's supposed to be worn. And then at the bottom of each one, this is also important, um, the writer lists appropriation and influence. So then you get little thumbnail images of how it's been worn for better or for worse. So we show examples of like, this is how you wear a pair of moccasins. This is someone who did it wrong, so to speak, with moccasins, you know, Uh, maybe didn't collaborate with the community that designed them. So you get to see different examples. So it becomes a learning tool. And it's also a cheat sheet for fashion brands to look at because they certainly don't want to be in the appropriation and influence section, or at least not in a bad light. And it <laughs> helps them understand, you know, oh, this is, oh, that's where that object came from. The way I've been seeing it is so distorted. So objects that matter in profiles, our profiles is like the human version of objects that matter. So profiles of individuals that matter to us is the same we also have a section I really love called In the News. And Anu Lingala writes that. Brilliant. Basically, I didn't want the database to just be this thing that people see as just resources and stuck in the past. Like it's just the history of the things. I want to be engaged in the present and like the present conversations. So, In the News is a bi weekly column where Anu gathers all the latest headlines. I mean, she curates it. It's not just, we're not just this news digest, but we pick some of the most significant headlines happening right now related to fashion, race, social justice issues, sustainability. And then she kind of gives you the rundown, like a little brief. It's almost like your own little news digest, you know, so you can keep up with what's going on. But we don't stop there. When you read the news piece, we also link many of the items to an article or a book in our library so that you can go deeper in the knowledge and understanding where it comes from. Um, so you have a deeper context of why this story matters. And then the rest of the sections like essays, self-explanatory, some of our original content, opinion pieces, the directory is really important. Um, it's where we have a growing list of all of the writers. I like the directory because it gives faces to a name. It's one thing to go in our library and just see hidden faces behind all the books and articles. But in the directory, it's really beautiful because you just get to see this whole mosaic of all the professors we love, curators, scholars, you know, all these figures people even in the industry who are activists. You get to see all their faces and see these are the voices who do the work of fashion and race. So um, and then we have and the last thing is we have a calendar section also. So it keeps you up with what's on. So like what, what uh, exhibitions are coming up, like going to the VNA to see the African fashion exhibition and things like that. that so it keeps you looped in. So it, it's really kind of an all-in-one place for anything fashion and race related.
0: Yeah. And you, of course, have a wonderful Instagram as well, the fashion and race database um, where you post every time you have a new essay or every time, you know, you added a new book or you, you highlight these things. And it's just such an incredible resource. Again, our listeners have heard us talk about the Fashion Race Database time and again on the podcast because it's so important the work you are doing to expand the narrative of fashion history in really beautiful and profound ways, right? I mean... Europe and America exist, you know, they've existed for centuries, thousands of years in Europe's case. You know, that's just one part of the story. There's this beautiful tapestry of clothed identities, Um, That exist, as you said, all over the world. And so by expanding the, you know, narrative of fashion history, nothing is lost. We are only gaining here. And I just, again, I can't, I can only say wonderful things. Um, And especially about like the essays sections is where you're really going to learn, you know, you can sit there and read essay after essay from a wonderful Plethora of scholars and people working within the industry or within academia. So, you've mentioned the social construction of race um, a couple different times. And I want to talk a little bit more about that and a little bit more about the connections between fashion and race specifically, because we all know there are people out there who question this relationship. and, And that's okay to question it. You know, these seem like two seemingly polar concepts, right? Like, what does fashion have anything to do with race? But in fact, they're intimately connected and have been for thousands of years. Can you talk a little bit more about that connection?
2: Yeah. These conversations, it's really, it puts a damper on things (laughs) for many people (laughs) because people think of fashion as fantasy, fun. Um, It's an escape from kind of the harsh realities. It's a place where you can kind of become anything or anyone you want to be. Um, it it's about invention, and, you know, and it's also seen in many ways as imaginative, visionary, creative. So then when you think of kind of these heavy realities like white supremacy, racism, discrimination, bigotry, you, no one wants to talk about that. Don't bring that into my joy, you know. Right. Um, but in reality, and, and we state this on the website, very little in our world is, is untouched by the social construct of race. It's just become so... Insidious, you know, we don't realize that, you know, there's this residue or traces of racist ideologies. You know, it's become a dominant worldview. I mean, that's one of the first articles that I I assigned in Fashion and Race is from a book on kind of what is race and like the history of race and where it came from, is exploring like how did it become a worldview? And you know, for at least four centuries. There's been writing, and I'll say at least four centuries. Of course, we can go farther back. But really in the last four centuries, you know, this idea of, you know, distinguishing groups of people by race has been done in, in, in earnest. We're like, really, men are taking the time to sit down and really theorize these ideas, making this sort of taxonomy and these hierarchies also of just sort of, you know, these people are subhuman and these people are the superior species of human. Um, These people are more close to primitive. And, you know, these are the advanced, civilized, you know, more cultural people. So we really start seeing this by the 1500s, where race, you know, really actually becomes a word, um, a term to draw distinctions between human beings. And by the 1700s, literature is published. And I I assign these articles in Fashion and Race where students can see the primary sources of, you know, like French writers who go off on just how subhuman the the black person is, the Negro is and you know the dark continent and just how you know they're just like animals. and so once this literature starts to spread and it becomes more of the, more than a theory, it really becomes a widespread ideology and, and it's adopted. we start to assume a natural order of things, a natural hierarchy. white is on top black is on bottom and everyone in between all the all the other, Constructed races in between were there to fight amongst each other. That's one of the other toxic things about white supremacy. Is it also creates a great deal of infighting for everyone who is not white, because white is the apex. It's it's the, it's where you're trying to be. So everyone who is racialized is fighting to not be on the bottom and be the least desired. So I mean, it, it's a story of not just white supremacy, but also. You see a great deal uh, over the centuries of just anti-Blackness, of other racialized people hating Black people because they don't want to be aligned with Black people. They don't want to be lumped together with Black people. They want to get as close as they can to whiteness. So yeah, we, we see that. And one of our researchers, Laura Beltran Rubio, has done so much great work contributing research resources to the Fashion Race Database on the history of colonialism and fashion, especially from the Latin American perspective. Um, She she goes deep into kind of the the legacy of Spaniards and how they play into race and caste systems and pushing out the indigenous people in various regions. And so, you know, it's not just like black and white. It's not just whiteness as we know it today and like white hair, blonde hair, blue eyes, things like that. It's more complicated. And I find that's what makes it so insidious and so toxic. So yeah, it, it starts to kind of shape What we desire in terms of physical appearance, um, presumed temperament, um, all of that gets widespread and concretized of, oh, you know, if I look at this certain group of people, this is probably their temperament. And, you know, this is the kind of facial features they usually have. And, you know, this is better, you know, and this, this is more desired and this is least desired. So, yeah, it starts becoming ingrained in our psyche and into our very language that we use. Even subconsciously, we even catch ourselves. You know, when we get, when we gravitate towards something or someone or the language we use about something, we realize, oh my gosh, that's kind of rooted in, you know, these racist ideologies.
0: Right. And just going back to the Spanish, and actually Laura was a guest on Dressed, I believe last year. It's all blending together, but she talked about her work on Spanish colonialism. But that's also something that I'm looking into in New Mexico, because New Mexico is this really long Spanish colonial past that goes back to the 16th century And that's really the way that Spanish people and Europeans in general, their clothing was so intimately connected to who they were. So, you know, when you're in Europe and you're around other Europeans, other white Europeans, it doesn't have the same racialized connotations as it does when you come, like the Spanish did, to New Mexico and meet all these indigenous groups. And suddenly, their clothed body becomes a barometer of superiority and civility. And you see that, honestly, up until today, right? So European fashion, if you look in like museums, for instance, is, is often classified exclusively as fashion, whereas in the dress cultures of any other people around the world is classified as traditional or quote-unquote world dress or costume. And so this there's this really long history of this connection between fashion and race and this clothed body and the way that people really visually manifested the differences between themselves and others and then used the dressed body as a justification for enslavement and i'm saying the clothed fashion body versus say like the less clothed indigenous body or the other clo- you know clothed bodies, the the, body the as, naked body the naked body yeah as a barometer of your civility so the more naked you are the less civilized you are and It's literally used to justify slavery. It's used to justify um, the dispossession of indigenous lands. And so these are the ways that we're talking about how fashion and race are so intimately connected in really incredibly profound ways. I mean, part of my research is looking at manifest destiny and this idea that, you know, Americans were ordained by God to take over the continent of the United States, and dress was intimately a part of that because it's one of the ways that they justified, again, how they were superior um, to these other people. So, yeah, lots, lots to talk about there.
2: <laughs> that is, yes, 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 and yes, everything you said. And I also, with, at the time of this recording, I feel like we're going in another stage of manifest destiny. <laughs> with Right. Like religion and politics like coming together. And also, you, you got me thinking, um, yes, like the naked body and you know, and how we perceive the naked body of uh, of less civilized, but also um, the violence of the opposite of the, of these of these people coming in to dominate a group of indigenous people and dressing them violently in their own style of dress. I'm thinking about boarding schools and, and indigenous people, especially in Canada, who are forced to wear these kind of civilized dresses, you know, in suits, you know. It's this is what you're going to wear. This is how we're going to break you.
0: And using those before and afters as advertisement, as, you know, the Carlisle Indian School did. So, you know, it was an advertisement for, quote unquote, civilizing Indigenous people. They would do before and after images um, of these children who are quite literally ripped from their families and their communities and everything and their culture and forced, as you said, forced assimilation into the white ideal. And it's it's incredibly tragic um, where, you know, those conversations are still happening today, again, because all of these mass graves are being discovered in these boarding schools. So again, this fashion and race connections are throughout history, and then the repercussions of it exist into this very day, which is why what you do and what the Fashion and Race Database does matters beyond just the fashion industry. <laughs> and one of the points we have on the podcast is just, you know, it, it, clothing matters in all of these really profound ways.
2: Absolutely. I think of like one other thing I just want to add is geopolitically speaking, it, it, it has me think about, you know, like one student in fashion in, in my fashion and race class at Parsons a few years ago. You're talking about the early days of like this kind of lavish clothing that the colonizers would wear. And then, you know, compared to um, the people who are wearing less clothing. But now, today, as a student was talking about this, it's wearing an Abercrombie and Fit shirt, you know, in Southeast Asia as a way to kind of buy into quote unquote modernity and show I'm a look I'm look at me I'm American value me like you know that clothing has this currency you know something that you know many of us be in the in the United States just think of oh my gosh an, an Abercrombie and Fit shirt thinking it's you know just Worthless, you know, or, or, you know, in terms of cultural value or ascension. But there it's like, no, to wear this and to show that I'm assimilating, this is going to get me farther in my respective country um, to show that, you know, I'm with it. I, I understand, you know, the styles and I can be stylish. And so it's the very opposite of the lavish clothing, but it's now, nowadays, it's co opting just basic sportswear, casual, kind of American Uh, a Euro-American dress to be able to show and kind of validate your citizenship, as it were. So yeah, it's just another phase.
0: Although that's also an example, right, of something that you show very well on the database throughout. Um, But just like this idea of subverting it, right? So even though Eurocentrism and even though maybe American-European fashion is kind of globalized at this point, the way that people wear that clothing within their different cultures and different societies, you know, subvert that narrative by putting that clothing on their body and by wearing it in these different instances and kind of rewrite that narrative in a way that changes it. Yeah. So again, you know, the Fashion and Race database is about fashion and race, but it's also about just kind of highlighting and celebrating these different narratives outside of like kind of this like linear, (laughs) linear, um, one, you know, fashion history that we've kind of all know and celebrated.
2: Yes. And thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Cause I don't want it to seem all doom and gloom or we're just like (laughs) nothing but resources and, and also people who might be rolling their eyes thinking, oh, so are you saying you're all victims or something? And no, but I mean, in some ways, you know, you know, like how, you know, we've been racialized and kind of the residue of colonialism that we carry and that we're trying to rub off. But yeah, it's also about joy and celebration. And we're also sharing articles of subversion and rebellion and people who are making a way out of kind of no way, as we say sometimes, in spite of oppression, systemic issues and and oppression. So we've got articles on all of that, too.
0: you launched the database in April 2020. And that was just one month before the murder of George Floyd at the hands of police officers. And this shook the nation, shook the world. It spurred over 400 protests in the United States alone. And these protests and then, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement or BLM had profound reverberations, including in the fashion industry. So again, how are fashion race related, right? So the fashion industry and it, where really these systemically racist practices that had existed for far too long really came to the surface. Like, we've talked about these issues over the years, you know, how Black fashion models are a fad, you know, sort of those sorts of conversations. It's not like those haven't been happening, but, like, I feel like things really came to a head in 2020 in a way that they just hadn't before And I'd love if you could talk a little bit about that reckoning and then, you know, the meaningful change you've seen in these past years, if you think it's been meaningful, if you've seen change. Um, But just as your work is evidence too, I mean, in my eyes, there has been a lot of meaningful change. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Meaningful change, yes, with respect to the doors it's opened for people like me, all the people doing this work, um, people who no one even knew about. All the activists who people didn't know were doing this work, this finally gave them a platform where they've really been able to kind of break out and, and kind of share their work on a larger platform to larger audiences. Um, so that's been the most positive thing I've seen is friends of mine who are activists and or outspoken academics in fashion, food, politics and general history, all these different areas, they all now have been able to get larger audiences. But in terms of industry, it it was very frustrating. Um, I was developing, I was kind of relaunching the database, redesigning it, I guess I mean, in April 2020, having no idea what was about to happen the next month. And I'm just so excited. I'm like, it's going to (laughs) launch June 1st, 2020. Get ready, everyone. And, you know, to our horror, you know, watching for everyone to kind of in slow motion, watch a man die on everyone's phones. You know, that's one thing. And then for everyone to just be outraged, I mean, as we rightfully should, it, it, it was like, you know, everyone just sort of, the fashion industry definitely re- jumped to action, but it was mainly because they, they didn't want to be on the wrong side of history. They wanted to, you know, you would look completely insensitive and out of touch if you didn't do something or say something. And so this was the infamous moment of everyone talking about the black boxes, the black square, right. <laughs> and everybody's coming out saying what they stand for and how they're going to give money to BLM and all these other black charitable organizations. And so I was one of them. I was, I was really out there on the front lines because I literally had the word race in my name. So everyone was just like, Oh, you're talking about race. And so everyone, you know, I'm not going to lie. We, we pulled in a, a great deal of donations that year. But come 2021, by spring 2021, the sense of urgency, um, all the excitement and the promises about, you know, what people wanted to do at that time was fading. Um, you know, people who were making promises to me or wanting to work with me or, to, you know, fading, you know, all of a sudden, you know, they weren't really around as much anymore. The money was drying up. It, you know, it just wasn't a concern anymore you know, and I get it, you know, for a lot of people, it was just dealing with a pandemic. By 2021, people were getting worn down by the pandemic and and all of the fallout that it caused personally for many people. But, you know, also there's issues with sustainability and climate change that were coming to a head. So it was just like all of these things just kind of coming together that people were outraged and anxious about. And now, as we're speaking here in 2022, two years with this now in the rear view mirror. It's funny, you know, before our conversation today, I was actually having a conversation with a former student from Bashman Race who reached out to me. They took, they took my class years ago and were thinking about me and just wanted to talk and just reconnect because it was still reverberating in their minds, like the experience from the class and what he was thinking about. And he was talking about how, you know, he was saying, Kim, everything just went back to quote unquote normal. Like everyone just business as usual, if not worse, you know, it, it's like, they just don't care anymore. It was the outrage of the year. And then they just went away. And sadly, you know, I, that has been my experience as well. It, it's just, I, thankfully I have a small handful of people who are saying, I'm still here. This isn't a fad. This isn't a trend to me. This wasn't just a, a moment, you know, I'm here regardless. I want to support you. Um, people like you and, and April, but it's frustrating. So, you know, I, it's an uphill battle. Here I am, you know, everyone was throwing money at the database in 2020. And here I am struggling to get funding for the fashion race database. I've had to kind of put the database on hiatus where all of my brilliant writers and researchers who are working at the database were on hold now. I don't have jobs for them right now. I'm trying to figure out. How we can get people to subscribe to the database and to give us money, like schools, museums, individuals, because this work isn't just going to, you know, pay for itself. You know that this is the work. This is ongoing work. This is the long game. This is a marathon, and um, this is supporting Black voices, Indigenous voices, Asian voices to do this work and to do this writing, um, because we're pulling together these invaluable histories and resources. So that we can build a roadmap to a more intelligent and equitable fashion system, because um, the one that we're working with right now is not sustainable. It's dated, even though they're doing the whole business as usual. It's going to collapse at this rate, in terms of consumption, the constant appropriation, just really, just, just the bold-faced, you know, taking from other cultures. It's not sustainable, and people are tired of it. But sadly, another thing when we talk about how insidious this is, and just sort of the tensions within the system. At the end of the day, this is what my former student and I were also talking about today. People are still going to love Dior. People are still going to love, you know, all the famous brands. They're still going to know what luxury means. They're still going to aspire. Even if they're racialized, they are going to pick the luxury brand over the independent Black-owned brand that's trying to make a name for themselves or the Indigenous folks who are trying to get people to buy them that's the sad reality. So, you know, there's, and these brands know that they know they're always going to remain on top. There's always going to be people who are just gagging over their brand and will do anything to be in those spaces or carry that handbag, wear that belt. So, you know, we're not ready to also just redefine and rethink what luxury means, what aspiration means, what a fair and equitable fashion system means. So it's not just these brands who are to blame. It's the consumers, too, who are sort of ambivalent or complacent about these things.
0: Yeah, I mean, we have a responsibility. And you always hear people saying, vote with your dollars, right? I mean, this is one of the ways you vote with your dollars is how you spend your money. Are you are you shopping at fast fashion brands or are you investing and, um, you know, small business owners who are creating fashion? Or are you buying into the Dior <laughs> Dior Chanel narrative? Which, I mean, let's be honest, in reality, how many people can afford these luxury items? But it's that aspirational, um, fantastical um, element that you're talking about that people still aspire to. Although, I mean, I feel like, I don't know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like, I know that you went to work for Gucci. Um, That was even pre-Black Lives Matter. Um, They had a huge controversy with like a blackface sweater. And I remember, I believe they hired you um, to help them because they needed, I mean, this is something that is like systemically within that company and within the fashion industry that that sweater went through all of these people and somehow made it on a runway and had to have like millions of people outraged before they even... That's what we talk about when we say systemic racism. It's like, you don't even see it because you're so used to it being there. And they hired you, you know, and then they have like collaborations with someone like, say, Dapper Dan, who used to illegally, I don't know, used uh, luxury fabrics. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I say ingeniously used luxury fabrics Mm -hmm. (laughs) in his designs (laughs) for his clients. But now they're like working directly with him. But that came out of an offense. Right. Too, (laughs) too.
2: I'm not sure that collaboration would have come up otherwise if, you know, yeah.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like you're seeing it, but whether or not it's like, or like Tommy Hill figure collaborating with you and supporting you on your podcast, um, which we talked about on Tuesday, how you, you feel like that's a meaningful relationship. I mean, it does seem like there are brands that are doing the work that they need to do um, to move forward, but it's definitely maybe the exception and not the rule.
2: Right. Uh, absolutely. And so, I mean, I kind of think, you know, pe- these people are always going to buy these brands. I don't see Gucci going anywhere anytime soon. Tom Helper going anywhere anytime soon. So at least, you know, if they'll they'll listen to us and I can engage them to be part of these solutions, so be it. You know, I know there's a lot of purists who, you know, I have my critics, you know, I to some people, they think I'm too radical or I'm doing too much and, you know, I'm making things, you know, uncomfortable. But then there's also people, you know, on the radical end of things who feel like I'm not doing enough. And how dare you work with Tommy Hilfiger? How dare you work with Gucci? You know, how dare you build these conversations? <laughs> but, you know, it is a conversation. These people aren't going anywhere, you know? And I know, you know, there's conversations about 2020 was kind of the year of the D word, you know, it was divest, decolonize, decentralize, um, dismantle, <laughs> uh, and so defund. And I get all that. And I, and I also, you know, support all of that. Um, that's going to be a journey though, to do that. But for now, we have people, including racialized people, working inside the fashion system, inside these brands. So when you want to burn those houses down, I'm working to, you know, first get these brands to listen, you know. And I'm if they have resources to give, if they have funds to offer, the kind of work that I'm trying to do, you know, bring it on. But again, I say that with, you know... <laughs> It's an imperfect process. It's, you know, I, I get critiqued all the time. Um, and so, well, maybe not all the time, but time to time, you know, there's people who just think I'm not doing enough, you know, because it's just not radical enough, or uh, there should be no compromise, or there should be no conversation with these people. So, you know, it, you're just never going to win. And I've also kind of, for the work I'm doing, I've made peace with that. You know, I would drive myself crazy if I sit here and try to please everybody. So I'm just trying to do the work in the best way possible and create a learning platform and media platform that gives space to the scholars and writers and activists who do have something to say and want to contribute. Uh, and I'm, hey, come on, you know, like, let's let's do this work because it's a long game.
0: Education is central to making meaningful, lasting change, you know, learning, educating. And then, as you said, just providing this platform for people to share, but also for people to use and learn. And I'd love if you could share how people could support Fashion and Race database. As you mentioned, you are one of a few platforms that pays the people who contribute. That's something that's really important to you and should be because so often academia, we work for free. Hundreds (laughs) hundreds <laughs> of hundreds of hours working for free as an expectation of participating in this space and so you know the fact that you pay your contributors is huge and they're doing really incredibly important work um so how can our dress listeners support you and the fashion race database
2: so the database is um yeah kind of a, a it takes on a double activist stance it's not just about educating the world about Fashion and race, and providing a centralized space for all the resources. The other thing that I'm advocating for is pay us. Like, this is also, you know, even though academ- academia kind of pats itself on the back for being the space that is, you know, all about, you know, challenging dominant narratives and capitalism and all this stuff, it's also famous for just exploiting people, you know, <laughs> yes. interns, researchers. It's for the service, it's for the good. For your resume. <laughs> yeah, it's very monastic. You know, it's, it's very much like, you know, we're just sort of um, just doing um, this divine work that, you know, how dare you want to indulge yourself with income to, to fund, you know, your, your life, you know. So, you know, all of this is for the good of the field and the research. And, you know, it's very elitist. You've got at the top these full time academics who are, you know, getting paid and tenured and, you know, get to travel the world just writing and researching. And then at the larger end of the pyramid from the middle down is, you know, the crushing unbearable weight on adjunct faculty members, research assistants, teaching assistants, all these, you know, interns, everyone for the good of the field working for pennies, if anything. And, you know, even when you get to like bring your research, you have to pay to be part of a conference or a symposium at that and and also pay your own way to be there. So yeah, um, the database is all about paying our contributors. So, any writer who solicits work or we approach to do work for us, it's not a ton of money, but still, it's significant. Um, we came up with kind of a pay scale of you know what we give writers and um, the research assistants, paying them for a couple of people. They were I was paying them more than they were making each month as an adjunct faculty member at a wow. at, at a popular fashion school. Let's just say that. And so though we've kind of run out. Of money right now, and because I'm trying to find a more sustainable business model, which is through a, um, unfortunately, a paywall. That though is going to force schools, museums to invest in us, become true stakeholders, give us money, subscribe to the database, so that your students can access the database, and so that I can have the funds to pay and bring back student interns who will be paid, research assistants who will be paid content editors, like also just staff, people who are working as social media managers, editors, copy editors, all of that. So it pays for all of us to be there and to thrive. You know, this isn't a charity either. Um, We're not a nonprofit or charity where, you know, we're kind of othered as just this like, oh, you poor, you know. No, this is, this is, I'm growing this into an influential learning platform, learning and media platform where I want people the goal is to have like employees, like part-time and full-time employees where they are making the same kind of salary or income they would working for a magazine or working at a school. So um, that is the goal. Um, so pay us. So it's, so it's also challenging that. and And I love, and I'm not saying this is all because of me, but I also love now that people have in this whole mighty reckoning we dealt with in 2020, I'm starting to see kind of like, calls for writers or even, you know, research opportunities where schools or museums are saying, oh, and by the way, we we will be paying you. So I'm so glad to see that because I think with the reckoning in 2020, people started realizing, oh, if we care about race and oppression and also, you know, women's issues and oppression, oh, maybe we should also care about economic issues and the survival of people. And, And especially when the pandemic brought all that to light, you know, with people's labor. It, it really kind of came, it, it really brought it home for people and for schools to realize, oh, we're
0: part of the problem. Absolutely. And so dress listeners head on over to fashion. Is it the fashion The
2: Fashion Race Database. And now, and become a subscriber. You can't miss it. When you go to the website, you'll be invited to subscribe. And so from time to time, I'll do a promo offer, but right now it's $20 a month to subscribe. And we also offer, um, and, and again, I'll have promos also uh, every now and then, uh, like a markdown. But I also encourage institutions, if you are listening and you belong to an institution or you're a librarian, um, consider an institutional subscription. So that way students and faculty don't have to pay or if you're part of a museum.
0: Thank you, Kim. This has been so wonderful. Thank you
1: so much.
0: Kim, thank you so much for joining us for this
1: very illuminating conversation. And duress listeners, the Fashion and Race Database needs your support and our support to keep doing this incredibly important work. You can head over to fashionandrace.org to donate and or subscribe and also learn more about the organization. You can also follow along on Instagram at Fashion and Race Database, all one word. Also, don't forget to download Kim's wonderful five-part podcast series, The Invisible Seam, Unsung Stories of
0: Black Culture and Fashion. While that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider why expanding the narrative of fashion history matters next time you get dressed. For images accompanying each week's episode, please follow us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast. We love hearing from you, so if you'd like to email us, please do so at dress at iHeartMedia.com. As always, special thanks to our producers,
1: Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at Media who makes the show possible each and every week.